the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, in a few moments, we'll talk with John Schlafly, first time in the new year. He's got a new column out. He's uh, taking to task higher education, especially over the Idaho uh, murders. And the uh, suspect in that case appears to be a longtime uh, academic type. And uh, John and Andy Schlafly have a column. Uh, you want to check that out and a lot more. Uh, later on, I've got some predictions, 2023 predictions. One of our folks um, uh, will be with us, a new guest who has uh, laid out some bold predictions for the uh, coming year. His name is Michael Wilkerson. Michael Wilkerson, uh, we'll talk with him also today. Hey, tomorrow is uh, January 6th, the anniversary of January 6th, um, Friday, all day. And so if you are paying attention, I hope you will find some ways uh, to mark that. Lots and lots of impact of January 6th, 2021. Um, none of it is what the media told you. None of it is what the select committee told you. They were lying about most of it. And uh, there's a lot to cover. We'll talk with uh, Cynthia Hughes tomorrow. She's the founder of the Patriot Freedom Project, and she is also uh, the mother. She calls herself a mother. Her adopted son, it's actually her best friend's uh, child uh, named uh, Tim she adopted and uh, he ended up in jail over it um, she's very articulate uh, eloquent speaker on the subject of January 6th and the impact especially on families also the founder of the Patriot Freedom Project uh, and I work with her a lot to try to help those families so great lady we'll talk with her about a terrible day and what has happened in the aftermath but first I the headline of this segment is if you checked it out um, online or in social media, I said Speaker McCarthy is a social media. Kevin McCarthy is the is the social media speaker, and then I put sick, meaning uh, maybe, maybe not. You know, I mean, in other words, he he is a product. This election for Speaker is a product of social media. What do I mean by that? Well, in the old days. If you were one of 20 people who voted against the speaker in a situation like this, there would have been a predictable way to influence you to come to the table and to participate in uh, a negotiation to get um, a speaker elected. And the predictable way would have been. Well, if you couldn't go face to face with a person, you know, you go say, hey, I want you to consider this, get in a room with the speaker uh, candidate and see what you would do is call back into the district and you would say, here's the most influential person in the district of that politician could be a campaign contributor, could be a religious leader, could be an old uh, machine politician leader, a political leader, could be lots of things. But there would be a handful of people who would be identified as the ones who are most supportive and important to a candidate for office, okay? So you get my drift. You see where we are. And so what you would do is you would call back into that district. You would say, hey, Congressman so-and-so, we really need a speaker. Uh, can we get this done? In the current context, the most important people, most important, you don't, have to, you don't have to like this, by the way. I'm just going to tell you how it works. The most important people, the most important influence in the life of a congressman or congresswoman is not necessarily, could be a donor, could be a political leader, 
But right now it looks like it's social media and media in general, big tech and the narrative machine and all those things, that phrase I use. So that if you're one of those 20, you're not pressured in the same way. And, and let me contrast this and go back in time. In the old days, you would have a smoke-filled room where you would get in the room and you would negotiate who's going to be the guy who gets these votes, who's going to be the gal, but at the time, mostly guy. It, this happened, by the way, at presidential candidates, uh, presidential uh, uh, pri- uh, um, uh, conventions, where you'd get in a room and there'd be people that were deciding who's going to get the votes on the floor of a convention vote. Still happens in some states, but at the national level, it's just a made for TV. It's a made for television, made for cable news, made for, uh, uh, you know, uh, made for TV is the best phrase event. The convention, the, the Republican convention, the Democrat convention, just, it's a, just a showmanship and salesmanship, not political conventioneering. So what you're watching in up in Washington, D.C. at the U.S. Capitol, is a guy, Kevin McCarthy, who has spent, done all the things you're supposed to do if you, if you play by the usual system. The usual system is you spend 10 or 15 years working your, uh, your constituents to get people to believe in you, to get people to owe you. You go out and raise a bunch of money from donors, from political donors, as lobbyists, as well as, uh, special interest groups, as well as individuals. And you get a track record for doing that. And then you run for speaker. And you have all those chits you cash in. The problem is the way you, when you have a tight majority like this, the way you cash in those last five or 10 is usually good old fashioned political pressure. It doesn't work the same way. It does not work the same way. In some ways, we are experiencing a more democratic process. Now, in some ways, it's a silly process, you know, where Twitter is dominating. But because you say, well, is it really democratic if the people in your district are not the ones who are agitating or paying attention? Or But the 20, 19 or 20, who are voting against uh, Speaker uh, candidate um, uh, McCarthy over and over again, they're getting tons of attention back home also. They're getting tons of attention nationally and back home. Matt Gates is more of a national leader now than he ever was especially for a third or so uh, term congressman from Florida. And Chip Roy, the Texas congressman who was a staffer to Ted Cruz four years ago, is now a well-known figure, Lauren Boebert. She barely won her election by 15 or 20 votes uh, two months ago. And here she is at the center of this whole thing. So my point is this election is, is the first of its kind in the new order. Social media, you can call it digital order. And here's a couple of previews that are coming. Think about this. We're going into the first presidential primary cycle where you're going to see similar kinds of attention, digital attention. Trump got a lot of earned media in 2016. In 2020, it was a different thing. I, I just think, and here's another one. You want to hear another one? Uh, earlier on Thursday, the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, former Pope, the, the Pope Emeritus Benedict was buried. He has funeral mass. Sometime soon there'll be a ma- there'll be a uh, uh, another vacancy in the papacy. Pope Francis is is older. At some point, like a year or two, whatever, how many years? That's going to be an election that happens in the new order, the new digital order, the new digital order of which we're in in which we're living is very different. And the pressure points on politicians to get them to consider or reconsider. I'm not even arguing. I'm not arguing what's better or worse. I'm just telling you how this works. I, the, the, those pressure points are different than they've ever been. And you can see that when you have six or seven votes in a row where nothing is really changing. 
In the old days, they'd have a way to change that. And there would be no grandstanding. There would be no C-SPAN. There would be no Fox News hits. At one point, Byron Donald, the congressman from Florida, was being nominated for speaker on the floor. And half the screen was showing the nomination speech by Lauren Boebert. He was on the other half taking questions in an interview from Fox News. That's what was happening. That's this is the, the reality is the reality is. The world has changed dramatically, and we're just trying to figure out how it's going to work going forward. All right, that's what you need to know. Speaker McCarthy, maybe. We'll see. But Kevin McCarthy, certainly the first speaker candidate in the new era, the new age, the digital age. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Time to check in for the new year, in the new year, with our old friend John Schlafly. John Schlafly, of course, has uh, held and continues to hold senior positions in the Phyllis Schlafly organizations. That's his mother, the late Phyllis Schlafly, and uh, also writes his weekly column, the Schlafly Report, published over at townhall.com. He writes that, co-authors that with his brother, Andy Schlafly. Uh, Welcome back, John. How are you? Uh, good, Ed. Good to talk to you today. Nice to talk with you. Now, first, before we get to um, the column title is Higher Ed Should Answer for Idaho Massacre. Um, but let me ask you, you know, Idaho, I was going to say in the new year, Idaho welcomed in a new uh, class of elected officials. But in a quirk of scheduling, Idaho actually swears in their legislators just about three weeks after the election in early December. And so I would but I wanted to highlight our friend Tammy Nichols, a longtime Phyllis Schlafly Eagle volunteer. Uh, who served in the state house in Idaho, has moved up to the state Senate in Idaho and uh, an extraordinary leader and somebody who's been, uh, a, you know, a real help to a lot of people in that state and across the country. So that's exciting news. I'm sure uh, you're tracking that and with some interest. Well, that's good news. And Idaho is growing its population, too, because of good governance, among other things. Uh, in fact, they projected that you know, if they redid the census and reapportionment, yeah. Idaho would get another district. So Whereas California, New York, uh, or Illinois are losing population and seats. So that's very significant. Yeah, and, and uh, that's right. And, and interesting there, I mean, as we're watching across the country or maybe nationally watching the, the, the play out in the U.S. House, um, I talked about it earlier, that the dynamic that the ability to watch what's happening in real time in the U.S. House, the speaker fight has changed the dynamic, I think. Well, in Idaho, um, they have their own kind of, as you mentioned, the growth. And there is a, a mostly Republicans in office and most of the levels. In fact, the attorney general is now uh, uh, Raul Labrador, used to serve in Congress, was a founding member of the Freedom Caucus. And I got that right. But um, but they have their own battle between the uh, conservatives and the more moderate Republicans. And there was a primary this year between the uh, lieutenant governor, uh, a woman uh, challenging the sitting governor. She lost. Uh, I would think I think she was described as more uh, populist and more conservative, especially on some of the covid uh, restrictions that happen in Idaho. So if you uh, I've heard Senator Tammy Nichols say with a smile on her face as she says it, you know, all these people moving from California, some of them are bringing their politics and that's not entirely good. So um, all right, John. Well, Schlafly, the fight, the fight is never over. Uh, uh, yeah. And, you know, the battle goes on, as Phyllis always said. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. All right. Now, John, the column that you wrote here, a lot of people attracted. I will tell you, over Christmas, I had a number of family members that are otherwise not plugged into politics too much. And then it was the holidays. They were watching this Idaho story, they, the, the story of this uh, um I guess, you know, deranged and now he's an accused, uh, uh, um, a killer. Um, walk us through though, John, what, what went on here? You, you, you placed the blame on, uh, higher ed, but walk us through what's happening. Well, we, you know, we made a judgment, uh, my, my co-author and I about what was really, what really brought the authorities to the suspect who's been arrested. They still haven't told us what was his motive or whether he had a previous relationship with anybody in that house. But what we have learned, and more has come out, is how they found him, how they tracked him down. Apparently, they uh, just on the fact that somebody saw a white Hyundai Elantra, that they tracked every white Elantra in the United States. And so then they got apparently some DNA, and they went to one of these ancestry sites, and was able to pl- have a match to a relative. And, you know, this is tremendous computer-aided police work that we has not been available until fairly recently that enabled the authorities to hone in on this one person. And it but John, really, John, really John before, we get, before we get past that, I, I, because I, I'm glad you talked about that. I, I saw that in your piece. We're talking with John Schlafly and his column again. We'll post it over on social media. The title is uh, Higher Ed Should Answer for Idaho Massacre. We'll get to that part of it. But, John, you covered that in the first few paragraphs. Um, it is it is interesting. It, it, in this case, it's exciting because people were worried about this killer. It was such a terrible tragedy and such a horrific thing, and they tracked him down. It's also, I don't know, is it troubling? I Meaning the power of law enforcement. In this case, we saw law enforcement showed us just enough of what they do that you could go, wow, they did that well. As you and I both know, we've seen a little bit of it in the Twitter files. Uh, law enforcement's doing a lot more than we ever see. I guess my point is, you know, you're, you mentioned the late Phyllis Schlafly, and, and she talked about the fight's never over. She wrote uh, frequently about the Chinese, um, what now is often referred to as the social credit score. People will recognize that. But she wrote about it before that, saying when the Chinese communists are in charge, they track everything about you from the time you're born until you're dead. They don't do it to save you from a murderer. They do it to control uh, your choices and control your life. Are you worried about the power of law enforcement, what they showed here, as a tip of the iceberg of what really is going on. Yes, I am worried about it. And we have what's been called the death of privacy. Uh, computer technology can be used for good or for ill. And uh, for example, here's a new um, article pointing out that all most court cases are online now. And so you don't have to go to a dusty courthouse and, you know, and uh, wade through papers to find out information about people who have been in civil or criminal cases. You can just sit right at home and tap to your computer and find all the intimate details of other people's lives. And that is very troubling. And, you know, it's just, it's voyeurism. And uh, yet that's where we are now. Convenience implies uh, the loss of privacy and, you know, exposure to hostile actors. So, 
it's something to be concerned about. I don't have the answer, but that's where we are now. Well, and you know, and, and John, I'll just give you a quick example. I mean, as you know very well because of our, our relationship over the uh, the last decade or so. In my family, my oldest uh, is a is a freshman in college. Well, I can see where she is, and I do regularly, meaning, you know, if I'm worried about her security, I can look on her, her she's carrying her phone, I can see where she is, a location uh, will tell me. Now, I, I actually discussed this with her, I think it was yesterday, and I said, your mother and I don't want to see where you go when you go out on a date, but we do want to see in case something happens. And so you have to keep that service, you know, on, okay? Now, if I can look at that, as you and I both know, so can law enforcement. And frankly, so can, you know, uh, I don't know, pick a, pick a tech company. I mean, it, the death of privacy, I think it's, it, it's not on life support. It's over. The only question is, how do you limit it? And I'm not sure, you know, this is a different conversation for uh, a, another column or a, another segment, but I'm not sure how you ever put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah, it's a, it's a broad and complex uh, issue. There's no question. And, uh, you know, we've seen how the, the, government has uh, had its tentacles into all the social media uh, companies, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and Google, uh, to influence the presidential election and other elections. And that's very, very troubling, too. Um, you know, the, the blurring of the line between uh, public and private, the blurring of the line between the government and monopoly, allegedly private companies like Facebook and Twitter, um, these lines need to be policed and, and, and uh, because our whole legal system and constitutional system really depends on that. So uh, it's an emerging issue uh, that will ultimately be resolved in court, I think. All right. So back to the column, John, we're talking about the Idaho situation. And one of the things is that it looks like the main suspect, um, and I don't know if we can say yet, I don't think he confessed to it, but there seems to be a lot of evidence around this. The main suspect is a 28 year old um, and Walk us through what, you know, I think this is important what you did. And I, I, I by the way, I was with at a meeting. Uh, I'm up on, in Washington, D.C., as our listeners know. And I was at a meeting and a very persuasive argument presented by a uh, um, uh, a nonprofit. I'm not sure their background that going to college in the current environment doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense in terms of earning potential. It doesn't make any sense in terms of lost earnings while you're in college. I'm talking about full time college. Walk us through what you guys, uh, you and Andy Schlappley in your column, um, discovered about this suspect uh, and how you think it relates to the conversation on higher ed. Well, he, the suspect was a graduate student. Now, that sort of lifts the lid a little bit off the higher ed business, uh, uh, which colleges, you know, make a big, make a big you know, living on high, highly, very highly paid administrators and teachers. Uh, teaching subjects that seem to be not worthy of advanced study. You know, this guy was studying criminology. Well, okay, criminology, maybe there's some value to that, but a PhD in criminology, it's dubious, I would say. And uh, and yet most graduate students, uh, we hear about student loans, but an awful lot of graduate students are actually compensated. They get They get a free ride. Somebody is paying for it. We don't know who. We need to find out who because uh, whatever it was, it enables graduate students to, you know, dabble in a variety of subjects, spend, you know, spend a lot of free time taking drugs and otherwise wasting their lives. And 
there's a lot of rot in higher education. Well, and- John, yeah, John, you dip your and you dip your you guys dip your toe into this. I think um, in, in way, I, I, you know, you're talking about how um, that you know Joe Biden has a, had a plan. It's been struck down. Maybe it'll be put back up to forgive a bunch of student loans. You point out how um, you, 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 I don't, I didn't see it in this piece, but you've written about it before. The I think it's somewhere near, I don't know, 300,000, 350,000 Chinese nationals come to America. They pay cash for college, which funds colleges. You know, in other words, uh, universities have become big business and they haven't created uh, a, a vibrancy amongst the citizens meaning that the citizens come out and are necessarily creative and hardworking. Uh, you know, late in the column, you reference your own mother, the late Phyllis Schlafly. She worked a 48-hour work week, commuting an hour each way in order to work her way through college in the 1940s. That seemed to be, you know, my father worked his way through college, and yet I didn't, right? I went to college full-time. Right? There's a, I mean, I had a work-study job, but, I, I you know, with this, and now we have people, uh, the slide down is you may stay in college slash higher ed till your late uh, 20s, early 30s. And I don't know if you become productive. That's kind of your point. In other words, the higher ed racket has really become counterproductive for we the people. Yes. And, and, and there's, there's so many oddball courses of study uh, and the, and the nutty professors and third rate colleges. I mean, I mean, and they all get uh, into the gravy train of federal assistance and, uh, subsidies of various kinds. It's not a true, it's not a market situation. You know, people, they don't have to compete. Um, you know, they don't have to, the colleges do not, um, you know, are not tested on the quality of their graduates, even if they graduate. And, you know, half of college students don't even graduate and where they rack up debt and have no credential to even show for that. So, uh, there's a tremendous and, 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 and federal, you know, now I, you know, the, the, the flow of federal money and, of course, Congress, you know, in the big omnibus that Congress rolled through for another year basically keeps the flow of funding that uh, was outlined a decade ago. And they're just rolling it over again to keep the flow of money going to all of these institutions, entities, companies that are drawing in money. and. Uh, think, John, John, you know, John, let me he, make one. Let me make one more point on this: is that there was a period, a lot like in healthcare, where you had um, faith-based, or and maybe maybe be a little bit more careful. To uh, I'll be a little more careful and say community-based nonprofits. It was a ministry uh, to go into healthcare. It was a ministry to go into education, and 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 it wasn't a business. And now, for example, in our backyard, uh, you go to look at some place like Washington University in St. Louis, which has. Uh, multi-billion-dollar endowment runs as a non-profit, but it can't be described as anything other than a big business. I mean, it's another part of this where education, which started out as a family, uh, you know, something a family had to do, parents had to do, became something that churches did, and now has just become a business. And once you're there, you're at a very different spot. Well, that's right. And some people have called it, you know, big major colleges with their huge endowments, so they're just a hedge fund. And, uh, you know, they're managing enormous pools of billions of dollars of money and, uh, um, you know, which is non-taxable. I mean, it's tax-free to them. And uh, and basically, they're independent of the market, independent of social control, and, uh, uh, and they're using their 
resources to uh, support one party, one side of the debate on all the important issues facing our country. And it's un- it's 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 you know it's something that needs to be questioned, challenged, and fought every step of the way. And we're hoping that this graduate student who's accused of a horrible murder, uh, you know, who supposedly studying a, a subject that we didn't even know was, you know, fit for, uh, <laughs> you know, graduate study, uh, you know, and I hope this can help shine a light on what's really going on behind the curtain of higher education. Uh, all right, John Schlafly, we'll put it up on social media. We'll check it out. It's a good topic. I think it's, um, you know, my last comment is when, when Donald Trump and I think the Republican House and Senate tried to uh, reckon with the size and scope of some of these universities, wh- whether it was um, um, the uh, attacks on the endowment, the discussion about whether we should limit the number of uh, foreign students studying there, the the lobby, the power behind the money and influence. Uh, again, it's it's the uniparty. It's both parties. It's It's not quite the military industrial complex. Uh, but it's pretty darn close. The university well, uh, complex is very strong. College, colleges need to be on the hook for a defaulted student debt. I mean, yeah. that is the key reform that we need. You know, John, uh, it's funny you say Terry Giles. I don't remember that name. Terry Giles was a business guy. One time he said the same thing. He said, hey, the biggest thing you do is put the universities on the hook. And his way of doing it was universities pay the um, pay the interest the students pay the principal, and the, the, you watch how fast uh, the system will adjust if the universities have to pay the the interest on a loan. But uh, again, I, my point is, I don't think you can get the the, the power behind higher ed is uh, dominates um, uh, decision making at the state and the federal level. So, all right, John, we have to leave it at there. We're running out of time. Uh, John Schlafly, everybody, as always, go to phyllisschlafly.com and you will see his columns archived there. He and Andy Schlafly write a weekly column and you can also go to townhall.com, our sister site, and uh, check out his weekly column. Comes out usually late in the day on Tuesdays at townhall.com. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Uh, you, I was telling you before we went to uh, break uh, that in the new year, I'm getting some new guests. I'm getting some new folks that I haven't had on the show before, and this is one of those. Our next guest uh, is a gentleman named Michael Wilkerson. Now, he's written a book. I love this title, Why America Matters, The Case for a New Exceptionalism. He's a businessman. He's worked in, uh, in business at the highest levels. He's uh, written another book, at least one other book. But uh, here's what flagged it for me he had 12 predictions for 2023 and a lot of people do this thing and it's great though to see what they're uh keyed in on and and so i went through this and i had some questions i thought well i'll just ask him directly so michael wilkerson welcome to the program how are you sir i'm doing well ed great to be with you so first of all uh your book title um why america matters the case for a new exceptionalism you know exceptionalism is a catch is is a um tricky word because american exceptionalism was something we used to celebrate there's a part of sort of i don't know of 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 modern life that says yeah everybody that's got their idea their thing their way is good it's you know be you um and don't judge 
don't compare them. But there is something exceptional about America, and 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 celebrating it is um is right to do. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, it absolutely is. You know, by saying it's exceptional, it doesn't mean that hey, we're better than you, or we can be exceptional in bad ways as well. But what's happened, and you pointed it out, is that over the last couple of decades, the idea of American exceptionalism became a, a, a dirty word, a bad idea. Um, just like patriotism itself has become a little bit of a confused issue for a lot of people. Is it really good to love your country? I argue in Why American Matters that yes, it does. That we should love the only place that we have to call home and we should care enough to to defend it and to defend its ideas and its values. So this idea of a new exceptionalism was to make a couple points. One, that America is great. America is great, as President Reagan said, because America is good. Hasn't always been, hasn't always done the right thing or the perfect thing, but it is a major force for good in, in the world. But a new exceptionalism, because we can't go back to the past. We can't go back to the past, uh, let's say, even in foreign affairs of the isolationism of the 19th century or the, the hyper-interventionalism that characterized the end of, uh, of the 20th century and the beginning of, of the new one. We need a new exceptionalism for a new century, not just in international affairs and foreign affairs, but domestically as well, on all sorts of fronts. And the book basically argues for that and, and, and provides some thoughts on how we might achieve it. Uh, Why America Matters, again, is the book, I think, I, is it Post-Hill Press? Is that right? Is it Post-Hill Press? It's Post-Hill Press, yeah, that's Post-Hill correct. Press, those guys do a good job over there. All right, so now to some of your predictions here. Now, I noticed that when I re- looked at this, um, uh, you know, 12 predictions for 2023, um, started off with the economy, which is really where you have, um, you know, um, you know, yeah. massive is the right word, I don't know, but great success in your career. Um, inflation returns uh, and the U.S. economy enters recession, your European energy crisis crisis worsens sounds pretty dire <laughs> well uh, you'll notice that the uh, i think the 11th or the 12th one was that i see some hope uh, in the back half of 2023 because i do think america's economy yep. is always very resilient very robust it's so dynamic what gets in the way of it was my 12th point which is this um the, some of the things that are going on in the Biden administration right now of reimposing uh, red tape bureaucracy um re- regulatory constraints on entrepreneurship and we see it of course in the energy sector uh, most dominantly but it's also true in financial services it's true in crypto it's true kind of across the board manufacturers and you know anybody that has a, a factories or building or making something point is that yes I, I think going you know back to your question i do think we're headed in we have some headwinds going into 2023 uh, i think we are likely to see a recession in the first half um, and I think that's not super controversial. I think that on that point, I'm kind of in the mainstream on, on this issue. Right. Inflation, I'm definitely the minority report. I think a lot of people, uh, and they may be right, let's hope they're right, argue that no, no, it's coming down. It was really driven by uh, reopening of the economy, post-lockdowns, et cetera. There's certainly some truth to that. I make a different, different argument, which is I say that the underlying, the root cause of inflation is actually monetary. It is the fact that since the global financial crisis, the U.S. has increased the U.S. dollar money supply 
by three threefold, three hundred percent, and we've tripled the money supply since two thousand and nine. Right, and along with that, uh, our debt has skyrocketed to thirty-one trillion dollars. A lot of that debt has been monetized, meaning it hasn't been sold to investors. It's been put on the balance sheet of the Fed, where the Fed's balance sheet has gone from around eight hundred billion uh, to over uh, to over. Uh, uh, sorry, eight hundred million to over, over ten trillion, uh, ten billion today. So it's uh, we've we've seen this massive escalation in size and complexity. Uh, sorry, that was a trillion uh, of 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 the government uh, financial system, the money the money supply, right. and all of those things are inflationary pressures that uh, that are that are going to persist as long as those issues remain outstanding. Historically, last point on this I would make is that what happens is um, that the uh, inflation lags behind the money supply increase by several years. So you look back like Weimar Republic in Germany and either other inflations in the 20th century, it doesn't show up right away. It takes several years uh, to manifest. And I think that's the process we're in today. Uh, we're talking again with uh, uh, Michael Wilkerson. Uh, he is a uh, longtime uh, strategic advisor and investor, uh, founder of stormwall.com. You can see more there. And he's uh, uh, written a book I mentioned, Post Hill Press. I'll put up on social media. Back to your predictions. Two two in here that I, I was interested in. There's a lot I'm interested in. Almost every one of them I, I sat there and thought. Con- but here's one. Continued rise of resource nationalism. And then your first sentence of that pa- paragraph is, the unforgettable geopolitical lesson of the pandemic era has been that just-in-time supply chain dependence on countries that many or may, that may or may not have a nation's interest at heart represent a dangerous folly. It is so, it, I think that's aimed mostly at China, uh, but the reality, as you know, yeah. is um, you know, it's harder than it looks to get out of China manufacturing-wise. We're getting some of the chip makers Absolutely. by, chip makers are doing it because we've, we've realized it's a national security question more pressing. But uh, the rest of it is going to lag, right? And is, is this resource nationalism is it sustainable i I think i think it has to be i'd argue it has to be but it doesn't mean it's easy i i got i got uh, i got glasses in the mail purchased for me from one of these services made in china they cost ten dollars and they're prescription and they're fine they're as good as what i paid 124 at uh at um uh costco so you know give me cheap stuff uh overrides a lot Sure. And I think the issue is it becomes give me chief stuff, but we realize that we cannot rely on China for strategic resources. Um, and I and I say that, that it's a global trend. This isn't just America first. This is about we're seeing a trend towards France first, Germany first, or every nation really beginning to rethink its supply lines. Look at Germany. Okay, They realize that they have made an enormous strategic folly error by uh, becoming dependent on Russia for 40% of their gas and, and uh, eliminating or, or shutting down their coal industry. Uh, country after country are looking at this and saying, hold on, we need to be much more thoughtful and make sure that if the, the, the geopolitical situation becomes less friendly than it's been in the last couple of decades, that we are protected and we're prepared. I think to your other point, absolutely, it will take a while. It took us a couple of decades to go through this process of offshoring, moving supply chains over. We saw all the job loss, all the bad things that happened. I think we're now seeing some of the consequences of that. And you're absolutely right. Realigning supply chains, finding uh, sources elsewhere. Think about uh, EV batteries, uh, the the batteries that are in your phone, but also in the electric vehicle. Well, a key ingredient of that is cobalt. Uh, 
we get 70% of our cobalt from one country, from the DRC, or the, the Congo in Africa. China controls about 50% of that uh, production and, and, re- and refinery. That's not sustainable uh, for us as a growing economy. We're going to have to find, that's you know, one example among probably hundreds, if not thousands, where we have to be much more thoughtful about rare earth minerals, about energy, about all kinds of things. Whether you get $10 glasses from China yeah. or not, yeah, you yeah. know, maybe that that's right. something that, that's much further down the road. Uh, we're talking again, Michael Wilkerson, uh, his book, Why uh, America Matters, Post Hill Press, uh, out last fall, as applicable as ever right now. Um, back to your w- one more prediction I wanted to ask you yeah. about. The West, weary cost, uh, West, the West, weary of cost of Ukraine war sues for peace. That may or may not be as controversial. I think a lot of people think eventually peace gets here. But it is clear to me. People are weary of that, right? Whether the psychology is just simply that inflation is high, therefore I see you spending billions in the Ukraine. People are, are sick of that, right? And so um, I, is that um, – what's your sense, again, having worked and watched uh, global business? Um, are we in a different period? It doesn't have to be called isolationism. It can be called uh, something else or it can just be seen as America first or whatever. But it feels like we're in something different than just a preference over Ukraine. Well, my concern is that we're still in the hyper-interventionalism. In other words, global policemen never saw a war we didn't like. You know, this is a perpetuation of the endless wars that we've seen uh, the last 20 years, uh, where the military-industrial complex really has uh, the, the vote and the deciding power here on what we do and where. And apparently, if you look at what we're doing, we haven't moved away from that. We haven't learned these lessons. And we've spent now with this new uh, omnibus spending package that just got ramrod through uh, Congress at the end of uh, end of the year, we're going to send another forty eight billion dollars in support to the Ukraine. That brings the grand total to a hundred billion dollars, much of which has been military aid. Uh, imagine, if you will, what, you know, how Americans feel about that, that, that kind of money and how it might be better spent here in the U.S. Uh, on all whatever your favorite project might be: infrastructure, economy, health, healthcare, whatever it is. It's a lot of money. We're spending it on something that really is a European issue that Europe should be able to 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 sort out itself. Uh, and I think we have to rethink it. We're spending not as one example, but we're also spending billions and billions of dollars. Like I can't remember the exact number, but it's several billion dollars on border security for Jordan and other countries in the Middle East. I mean, we can't even protect our uh, our own borders, and and we're trying to again be little policemen to help others protect theirs. We've got some backward priorities, and you look at what's happening with the you know, today as we as we speak this issue around the election of the Speaker of the House. You know, it just goes to the dysfunction that we're seeing in the frustration uh, that we're seeing around how those kind of omnibus spending pill, bills happen, how they violate the norms that used to work in, in our Congress and how money gets spent, decisions get made. You see this sort of frustration in the way the House Freedom Caucus is, uh, you know, digging in their heels and doubling down on, on resistance to to Kevin McCarthy, a speaker. Yeah, it's it it, it um well it's it, it and on that note, just to finish on that, I think um yep. I, I, there's something uh, about uh, how fed up people are. Whether it's we're tired of the economy, we're tired of the, maybe it's post COVID, whatever it is, uh, people feel uh, more fed up than ever. Uh, by the way, uh, Michael Wilkerson again, his book Why America Matters: The Case for a New Exceptionalism. I will put over on social media a link. He's on Twitter, although I'm checking you out. You're good. You're good on Twitter, but you got to get we got to get more 
our followers. So we'll put blast that out too. Yeah. Well, I just came back on, you know, oh, now that you? the bird is free. So. Oh. <laughs> okay. There you go. Well, uh, and yeah, I had will... to drop off in 2020. It was, uh, it was getting out of control. There you go. Well, we'll, and we'll have you back on again to uh, continue. I appreciate very much you writing your book and uh, discussing it. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, sir. Very good. Thanks, Ed. All right. We'll take a break, everybody. When we come back, uh, we've got a lot more. Don't forget, go to proamericareport.com, sign up for the daily email there, and uh, also uh, check out social media. I will, as I mentioned, I will post over there uh, links to uh, our, uh, our to uh, uh, Michael Wilkerson's uh, pieces. We'll be right back. Ed Martin, Pro America Report. Back in the Welcome back, everyone, to the Pro-America Report. This is Ryan Height filling in for Mr. Ed Martin here at the end. I wanted to give you just one quick piece of homework. We've only got about a minute and a half left, and I wanted to tag on to something that Ed has talked about. Obviously, unless you've just been unplugged from the world, you probably know by now that over the last three days, the House of Representatives, the brand new House of Representatives, has been voting and voting and voting and still cannot find a majority to elect a Speaker of the House. That happens even before they swear everybody in. Uh, So we are early in the process here. This is the first time in 100 years it hasn't happened on the first ballot. And I tell you what, I know that Ed has kind of cut through some of the media narrative, some of the spin that's being done by all the different sides, uh, as there's a Republican side and a Democrat side, and then the dissenting Republicans. And I just want to give you a quick piece of homework. Not everyone has been able to watch the hours and hours of debate that has happened and the roll call taking and the votes. And it's just been monotonous almost. But out of all of this that we have watched, can I recommend three speeches? If you Google it, I promise the first thing you'll find under these three names will be the speech probably from this week. But look up Congressman Chip Roy from Texas, Congressman Dan Bishop from North Carolina, and Congressman Matt Rosendale from Montana. Amid all the spin that has happened on the news, on social media, as people run out off the floor to go and tweet or hit on to uh, Fox News or somewhere else to talk, these three have given, I think, the best summation of what these 20 dissenting Republicans are asking for, the change that they want to see happen in Congress, and I think it's something that every American needs to hear and see. Go watch it. Trust me, if you're not, if you're not going to be able to watch anything from the rest of these hours and hours of uh, proceedings on the House floor, go watch Chip Roy, Dan Bishop, and Matt Rosendale when they each gave a nominating speech for Byron Donalds. You won't be disappointed. That will help break it all down. Thank you so much uh, to Ed, our host, for guiding us through all of these issues. Thank you to Noah, our technical director who gets this thing off the ground every day. And we will look forward to seeing you all back here tomorrow on the Pro-America Report. Have a good night, everybody. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.